Hello and welcome to the Free Music Head Podcast. Uh, my name's Stephen, and today I've got a gentleman by the name of Dave Wilkins, and he has a website called wilptone.com. And uh, how's it going, David? Oh, very good. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Hey, I'm excited because I'm a fan of your podcast. Your Woke Tone podcast, you've got about 20 episodes, and it's a great podcast. So in fact, I'm even okay, listeners, if you just turn this one off and go listen to his. It's probably better. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, uh, David is an expert in composition and brass embouchures and uh, jazz improvisation and teaching those different things. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But first, David, could you tell us just a little bit about your uh, your history and your experience? Oh, sure. Well, um, I got started as a, a composition major at a, uh, as an undergraduate student. I went to Illinois Wesleyan University for my composition bachelor's and uh, studied composition from uh, uh, Abram Plum, who was a contemporary classical uh, composer for one year, and then uh, for the following three years studied from uh, David Veo, who uh, also contemporary classical composer, but also uh, uh, pretty open-minded about jazz and, and different kinds of, uh, all sorts of different composition styles and world music and different stuff, and so got turned on to a lot of interesting music that way. I also studied uh, jazz and trombone from Dr. Tom Streeter there. Um, uh, I kind of got into music education myself a little bit late in my schooling. I wasn't, uh, it wasn't until I was a senior at uh, Illinois Wesleyan that I became interested in, in actually teaching. Uh, the story behind that was that uh, Dr. Streeter had to go off on a conference for a couple of weeks, or a week or two, and he would usually leave a couple of seniors in charge of the jazz ensemble rehearsals while he was gone. And out of maybe the four or five of us that were seniors, there were a couple of us that were interested in actually getting up in front of the band and directing the group. And uh, after the first day, uh, the uh, the other senior kind of got up there, and I, if I recall, he directed maybe one or two tunes and decided he'd rather play trumpet and left me to uh, direct the rest of the rehearsals. And that was an experience that really kind of shaped my interest in becoming a teacher. I found it so much fun to be up in front of an ensemble kind of directing the sound and getting the, the the different sections to respond. Hey, guys, try this, and let's do it this way and see what happens. And everybody was really great with that for me, and that's really what kind of pushed me into, uh, well, going on to graduate school and eventually becoming a college teacher for a while. I taught uh, adjunct at Indiana Wesleyan University and then later taught at Adam State College, which is, I think now, Adam State University. It's a small school in southern Colorado. Um, in 2003, I left that position and took a position and was the coordinator of jazz studies for seven years at the University of North Carolina at Asheville, in Asheville, North Carolina, and have also been teaching adjunct uh, past three years at Western Carolina University. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I really I want to get into the meat of this. A lot of research that you've been doing has been on brass embouchures. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that I've seen teachers go anywhere from some very serious visualization with beginning students to uh, you, you make a buzzing sound and then you stick the trumpet on your face. Uh, <laughs> I, I bet you have some really strong opinions. Could you share some of those with us? Certainly. Well, with regards to beginners, it's kind of kind of interesting. I study brass embouchures and get into it because I just happen to find it interesting and think it's it's kind of a neat topic. 
And like many people, I have uh, a personal story about how tweaking my embouchure suddenly made for uh, a dramatic improvement in my playing. Um, but one of the things that I've learned about brass embouchures is that they're infinitely variable. And so what worked for me is not necessarily going to work for uh, many other students. So um, my goal as, an, as a brass teacher is to help each student find an embouchure type that will fit their own anatomy and kind of work with what they've got rather than trying to make their embouchure work the way their teacher works or their favorite player or, or whatever they think they want to do. Yeah, so that infinite variability is due to different types of lips, right? Well, yeah, all sorts of different anatomical features. Uh, everything from the, the relationship of how long the teeth and, and gums are to the relationship of the, the length of the lips, uh, the size and shape of the, the lips and their texture, uh, the jaw, the bite, um, all sorts of different features. My dissertation explored all these different physical characteristics and tried to pin down some uh, easily observable anatomical features that would kind of predict uh, which basic brass embouchure type a particular student might function best. And one of the things that I discovered in doing all that research and crunching the numbers is that it's not quite that easy and that there's a little trial and error that usually has to go into it. Okay, so uh, what, what's what's a good starting place, do you think? And is it different from instrument to instrument or... Yeah, what what would you do? Um, well, a lot of a lot of different players will tell you it's different from instrument to instrument. But from what I've been able to observe, and I've tried to study all of the brass instruments as uh, as much as possible, you really you see the same basic patterns uh, from instrument to instrument. Um, so I don't really think that there's a whole lot of difference about it. As far as a starting point goes. Um, it depends on if you're talking about beginners and what age group they are, or if you're talking about uh, somebody who's an adult and who's already kind of stopped growing, it doesn't have their physical features changing, they're not going to get braces and having their teeth shape change underneath them, that type of thing. Um, with regards to starting beginners, I think uh, one of the best things that a, a teacher can do to help students with their embouchure is teach them to have a firm embouchure formation but beyond that, uh, teach them how to hold the instrument correctly and hold it consistently the same way. Uh, holding the instrument is a, is a really important part of a brass embouchure, which a lot of people don't think of, uh, because how you're holding the instrument to the lips is going to determine the angle uh, that the instrument's going to be placed against the lips and how high or low on the lips it might happen to be placed uh, if it needs to go off to one side or another. Um, young students, if left to their own devices, tend to f gravitate towards what works without any kind of particular instruction. I think it's only when people get a little bit older and start reading up on stuff or start trying to logically think their way through, if they kind of misunderstand what they need to actually do to find their own mouthpiece placement and embouchure type, they, that's when they, they start to kind of go wrong and, and start trying to make things work because they've seen a, a famous player do it this way. You know, there's some weird things when you watch a lot of different professionals. You know, uh, I, I have my kids make as many observations as they can every time we do a video. And it, it breaks my heart when someone is playing completely the opposite of how I'm having my kids play. <laughs> you know, you, you see them crunch over or cheeks start puffing out or any number of things. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's fun to look at really great players. And one of the things that, that I've noticed is how many 
great players do things uh, that I would consider to be wrong, and they still sound great. Sometimes, uh, you know, maybe that means I need to modify my ideas and think maybe it's not wrong, or maybe it's sometimes I just kind of think, well, that player is a, a freak of nature and is such a strong player, they would sound good no matter what they did. Yeah, it's maybe one of that sheer endurance of practicing and that experimentation with what works that they figured out something that worked for them. Mm-hmm, yeah. Here we go. I'm going to walk you through problems that I have with different types of beginners. And uh-huh. I, I know we're talking about something that's infinitely variable, but uh, maybe you can give me some suggestions to sure. like a starting place. Okay, first one, I have some students every now and then, uh, and it's a minority, it's one or two students in every class that will start gravitating towards lifting their chin up, tilting the head backwards. Well, people have different degrees of, of what would be called a malocclusion, a jaw, uh, a jaw bite. And in many cases, I think some of those, those students might do better if they could bring their jaw forward. And instead of tilting their head back to get their bell up, they would just bring the jaw forward. And that way they could kind of maintain the, uh, the mouthpiece weight on the bottom lip that they want uh, without having to tilt their head back. In some cases, it may be absolutely correct for those students at that particular time to just bring their head up straight and let their bell point down somewhat uh, within reason. There are some uh, rarer embouchure types that have a very receded jaw position and have a lowered horn angle, and it's absolutely correct for some players. Um, And sometimes it seems like that's a stage of development that some players need to go through that they need to develop a little strength and control with a a very receded jaw position and a lowered horn angle before they can start bringing their jaw forward and raise up the horn angle. So it's kind of hard to say without actually being there and and being able to experiment a little bit and and get the students to try it on a couple of different things and see what works. You know, there's something you said there that interested me, and that was, you know, talking about that being maybe a stage they have to work through. Mm -hmm. You, You have some ideas maybe of some things that Maybe I, you know, working with young brass students or brass students in general that I should wait on and not try to fix versus things that I definitely should try to get on top of right away. Um, well, one one thing that really kind of irks me when I hang around uh, brass player forums and people start talking about embouchure is people start talking about mouthpiece placement and saying, oh, well, my placement has uh, – very, very little upper lip in it, or I, pl- I even place on the red of my upper lip, or my placement is off to one side, and uh, I want to fix this. And I'm not always convinced that that's necessarily something that you want to fix. Um, and very often people will say, well, I'm having problems, they're embouchure problems, but there may be other issues of embouchure form that can be corrected, that their mouth corners are held too loose, that they're um, not uh, doing the work at the in kind of the knot of muscles that are at the mouth corners, or they're bunching their chin. Maybe they're smiling to ascend. Those are things that I would work on to fix. What I wouldn't fix would be the mouthpiece placement. Um, once you make corrections in the overall embouchure form, uh, like I was saying earlier, a lot of people will naturally gravitate towards the placement that's going to work correctly for how the shape of their teeth and gums and jaw position is going to fit best for them. Yeah, it sounds like there's really just not a lot of one-size-fits-all solutions for a brass embouchure. 
Uh, no, unfortunately, there's not. I wish I wish I could. I wish I could talk about that. I mean, there there are some basic things about embouchure form. Like I said, try to do the work at the area of the the muscles around the mouth corners, keep them more or less locked in place, um, things like that. But then, what one player wants to do and is absolutely correct for them might be completely opposite of what another great player would do. Sure. Uh, how about how about tone development in brass students? And not all of that's embouchure in just the lips, but also in the throat shape and those type of things. Sure, yeah, it's it's all it's all part of one big picture. And of course, the the tongue and the use of the tongue and how they uh, articulate notes and the position of the tongue inside of the mouth, all those things come into play. And the, the basic gist of that is to coordinate all of that. And make all all the tonguing and the embouchure and the and the air all work together. Um, in general, and I think you see this in a lot of traditional brass pedagogy, it's uh, very easy to make corrections to the breathing, and that's uh, one thing that's really emphasized. But it's probably the most natural part about playing any woodwind or brass instrument is the breathing aspect of it. Everybody breathes, and there's no way to breathe in a way that's really kind of unnatural. So what you want to do is just make the breathing work. Your your natural approach to breathing, make that the the one that you use for brass playing. Um, so I tend to focus on breathing a lot with tone production and try to help the student that way. And when the breathing is happening, then embouchure can, can work a lot easier or tonguing can work a lot easier. Of course, if you can spot something in the embouchure that's not working correctly, you can make a correction in that and the breathing suddenly starts working better. So it's all interconnected. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course. And uh, what what's the best place to get more information? Now, you've, you've got a lot on your website, don't you? Yeah, I've posted uh, quite a bit on my website. Um, these things are really kind of difficult to write about, although I, I certainly try. Um, and so I've created a whole series of videos that are uh, that you can link to from my website. Um, but also look at uh, look for my uh, channel, uh, Wilktone on YouTube. And um, my recommendation, if somebody's really, truly interested in learning more about these brass embouchures, is to go and find the uh, Brass Embouchures, A Guide for Players and Teachers, is the title of it. Uh, it's basically a 50-minute presentation. I did that at uh, NCMEA several years back, and I took all of the uh, slideshow notes and video footage and photographs, and I just narrated myself uh, over that and turned it into a video that I posted on YouTube. So that's probably the most complete one. I've got a whole series of smaller ones that are good good resources for people if they just want to kind of dip their toes in the water and see what uh, the brass embouchure research that I'm doing is all about. That's wonderful. Uh, now, what what are the things, what are we all doing wrong? Because, you know, as, as a middle school band director, I learned lots of little tricks when trying to, you know, teach 25 kids how to play trumpet at the same time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, what what are the things that you see that are, you know, all the band directors seem to be doing wrong? Um, well, I think I've, I've mentioned one of them already in that everybody tries, to, uh, so a lot of band directors will try to make all of their students' embouchures look exactly the same. And I don't think that's really necessary. Uh, but again, at middle school, and working, I'm working with a middle school group right now, uh, Owen Middle School uh, in Swannanoa here in North Carolina. I'm helping out uh, the band director there and working with beginners. So I'm learning quite a bit working with beginners myself. Again, I think a lot of it is just trying to know when to stay out of the way and when to go ahead and intervene on their behalf. And sometimes you just, uh, I find myself telling them just about anything, even 
even stuff that later on I think, well, I'm going to have to fix that later on, but just to kind of get them going right now. I I would say probably one of the things that I struggle the most with is is especially with large groups of of students and and particularly if you don't have them in a homogenous group where you have all brass or all woodwinds in one group is just making sure that you go around and and try to make all the little tiny corrections to different players as uh, in a large class somebody might not be sitting up straight somebody's puffing their cheeks and you just got to kind of keep on them about that type of stuff before it becomes second nature. So I say that's one of the one of the biggest problems that I'm dealing with right now is just I tend to get a little bit complacent and oh I need to go tell Johnny over there in the trumpet section that he needs to quit puffing his cheeks again. He just doesn't listen, but they need that constant reminder. Well, and those students will tend to either they want to fix it, but the habit's there, and as soon as they stop thinking about it, it goes back. So they have to make that correction a lot of times, mm-hmm. or they feel like what they're doing is actually better than what you're telling them, you know, yeah. which is tough too. them gravitating to what seems to be working for them. And I see this with a lot of adult players too. A lot of times people discover things that... Uh, seem like they're going to work, and maybe they they actually do work at the time, but in the long term, I wouldn't necessarily think that doing it this way would be such a great idea. And it's kind of hard to convince people, but it's working. So it's a little bit hard to convince people to to go ahead and change their habits because they they feel like it's it's going to work for them at this time, even though I might feel down the road it could be more limiting for their playing. Right. Well, and some some students wait until they get limited to decide to change it. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So this is a a slightly different topic, mm-hmm. but uh, a brass issue for me. So building range on brass, it just seems like a marathon. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it can be. <laughs> like, uh, do you have any? You know, what are the best exercises for starting to learn? I mean, I'm talking about just within the normal ranges of the horn. Well, building range on a brass instrument is not quite uh, like building range on a flute or a saxophone, for example, where there's uh, very little. Um, I shouldn't I shouldn't say it this way, but there may there may be less of an embouchure strength issue going on there. Yes, and you are right. So <laughs> uh, you you you, you walk in the clarinet players pick up their clarinet and they instantly play in the altissimo register. They call yeah. it they call it squeaking. Squeaking. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's what I sound like when I play clarinet. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, when, when, as learning the woodwind instruments, one of the things that I found is that um, it's a different sort of muscular direction. On the woodwind instruments, it seems like what we're trying to do is come inward from the corners and sort of uh, wrap around the mouthpiece like a rubber band for clarinet or saxophone, for example. And on a brass instrument, that kind of pull, pushing the corners inward can be kind of a destructive habit. What you want to do is is lock them kind of in place, more or less where they might be at a resting position. And so in order to encourage that, one of the things that I personally practice and recommend for a lot of students is, is just a light, airy, kind of mosquito-like free buzzing. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that too much for beginners. I do do it a little bit, um, but I think most beginners would rather just kind of play the horn and uh, down the road, as they start getting a little bit more serious about the instrument, um, then maybe I'll start introducing a little bit more free buzzing to them. Maybe by the time they're in seventh, eighth grades, uh, maybe into high school type of thing. Um, but uh, again, I've, if you wanted to look on YouTube or on my website, I've written a little bit about some of the free buzzing exercises that I've picked up and uh, like to use for that. 
Yeah, that sounds good to me. And uh, that's on your YouTube account, which is, yeah. again, with the Wilktone name. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or you can, you can also go to my website, and I'm sure it's embedded in a blog post if you just do in the search box for free buzzing. And and I describe it. Uh, the, the basic exercise I use is one that Donald Reinhardt wrote about. Uh, Reinhardt is known for a book called The Encyclopedia of the Pivot System. Um, I, I try not to use Reinhardt's terminology because it gets a little bit confusing to a lot of people who haven't read the book. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people misunderstand a lot of what he was trying to write about that. But uh, I would like to give credit to Reinhardt for uh, he's also one of my major sources for my dissertation for people who are interested in learning and getting into more detail about brass embouchure types. He was probably the first brass teacher uh, uh, that wrote extensively about brass embouchure types and made it an important part of his pedagogy. All right. Yeah. Uh, and we'll put all of that inside of this description, too. So if you are having problems finding any of these links, they are all under the description at freemusiced.org, where you may be listening to this podcast. I was reading your blog uh, just a day or two ago, and you had a great post about teaching improvisation inside of a band setting. Yes. And this was really interesting to me uh, because, of course, you know, everybody teaches improvisation inside of their jazz bands or in those type of ensembles. But when it comes to a concert band setting, uh, it's a little terrifying for a number of reasons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, well, especially if you're somebody who has not had an opportunity to play jazz in college or high school and, and never really learned to improvise, a lot of people get very intimidated by it. You know, we spend a lot of time learning to play what's on the page perfectly. And then when we're suddenly uh, told, don't play what's on the page, make something up, it can really throw a lot of people for a loop. Well, um, and I, I think that you would probably agree with me that it, that's uh, it's something that's fundamentally wrong with music education, that we don't encourage and teach improvisation all the time. Yes, yes, I, I think so. And one of the points I made in that blog post is that uh, the national standards for music education include that students should be taught how to improvise and compose music. And the North Carolina state standards have a, a number of different, uh, what we call the essential standards, and they're emphasizing uh, a number of different things that include Im improvisation. And so one of the things that I've always felt is, regardless, was that even students who play flute or, sac or clarinet or um, not drum set, percussion, uh, tuba, all the non-jazz instruments, they, they deserve the opportunity to learn to improvise as well. Um, and I've, I've been kind of fortunate that um, Mary Jo Sparrow, the director of the North Buncombe Middle School uh, Band here in the area, has brought me in about once a year for the past uh, three, four, five years, I think, to give that kind of uh, that workshop that I described with her middle school band. And so I've kind of been able to use them as guinea pigs and try out different ideas and teaching improvisation in a concert band setting. So let me describe overall what I understood from the article. And you can tell me if I'm right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, a lot of your method is, first of all, trying to incorporate ear training, as in whenever you want the kids to learn a note or a scale or that type of things, Instead of handing it to them written on a piece of paper, you try to get them to play it back to you. Yes, exactly. And if you've got to go very slowly, and uh, depending on the students, some of them will pick up on it very quickly, and other students, you teach them how to find it by going up or down the chromatic scale. Just keep going until they find it. Um, you know, and I always have to, there's always a few students that you'll have to help along and actually just tell them the pitch, but 
um, again, it's a, this is a, not a new kind of pedagogical system where you teach sound before sight. And for improvisation, I think that's a, a crucial aspect to kind of develop that ear training aspect. Uh, then also you take uh, and you you start working on developing their ability to play back notes in different sequences like riffs and also mm -hmm. uh, start to build a bit of a background. Yeah. Well, uh, with a jazz ensemble, teaching improvisations uh, relatively easy. You can say, okay, let's play a blues and F, and uh, you might hand out the chord changes to the rhythm section and give everybody the blues scale and go. You're you're all set. But in a concert band setting, you don't have that opportunity to uh, really just go ahead and and get a groove happening to improvise over. You've you've got to teach the concert band uh, some sort of background figure over which they can practice improvising. And so what I like to do is take simple, maybe one or two chord vamps and, again, teaching it the, the group by rote. And I'll usually have three basic riffs. I'll have a bass line riff and get, the, get different instruments. And it, it always depends on the balance of the instrumentation you have. Um, you might have trombones as part of the bass line. Um, then I'll also have a kind of a chordal type riff that I usually put in the alto or tenor voices. Uh, depending on the instrumentation there. And then I'll have a melodic type of riff that I usually put in the soprano voices, or sometimes I'll throw that in a tenor alto voice in octaves or something along those lines. But you just do real simple uh, ideas that maybe incorporate three notes for each player. So they're they're not all that hard to pick up and memorize. Um and then you just get uh, the whole band riffing over those those uh, three different basic ideas, and you've got yourself a, a little rhythm section groove that you can then improvise over to demonstrate different improvisation ideas and have the students try things out for themselves. And I looked on that blog post. You have some of these backgrounds that you've put together uh, notated and such, but your preference is to... You know, the, the director kind of memorize what the riff's going to be like and then teach it to the students by rote, if possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, it's okay to hand it out to them, of course. Um, you know, we're trying to teach students to, to be musically literate as well. But if you're going to do something like that, I would I, my uh, suggestion would be teach it to them by ear first, get them to play it. And then after they've done it and tried it out once, if you want to do it the next day, then uh, you can then you can hand out the music and say, well, here here's what we learned yesterday now written out. And that way they'll have an easier time remembering it or, or, or repeating that idea. Uh, but mainly I wrote those out and posted those uh, for the band directors because a lot of band directors, especially if they're new to improvisation or don't have much of a composition or jazz background, they may not have an idea of, well, where do I start to put together a two-chord vamp? That's a lot of people. And it's kind of odd. I've always thought that we teach improvisation with jazz starting out. And it's like, w w could we pick a more complicated type of music to begin teaching kids <laughs> to improvise to? And one of the things that I don't think I really put in the blog post uh, and discussed, but uh, is a point that I like to make to a lot of band directors, is that um, improvisation in and of itself, um, even though jazz, uh, uh, it's improvisation is very important to jazz, it's not exclusive to jazz. And that there's improvisation in all sorts of musical styles, including contemporary classical music styles. So depending on the students that you have, you might try uh, doing sort of a minimalist type of idea instead of trying to, to set up a blues riff idea. So just get... Uh, 
Um, uh, many people might be familiar with Terry Riley's in C. We'll just get a bunch of people hitting eighth notes on C and then teach them a simple C major pentatonic scale over which they can improvise while uh, other people are playing background figures on C and G or something along those lines. So you can you can create all sorts of interesting exercises uh, and ways to improvise that may not necessarily be uh, jazz related too, depending on your goals and and what your ensemble is wor- that you're working with wants to work on. There's such a challenge if you're imagining a concert band with say 60 students in it or something like that to to get everybody a chance to improvise. I guess a lot of what you would be doing in the situation is trying to uh, spark some interest in them at least, get them interested in doing it themselves. Yeah, if you've got a smaller size group, you can go around and one of the things that I like to do with the, the, the groups that might have 30 or 40 players is you give everybody a chance to play four measures and pass it down the line. And so everybody gets a, a little bit of a chance to experience solo improvisation. But you can also do a lot of group improvisation, again, going to, to jazz. Uh, the early jazz Dixieland styles is, is very much uh, collectively improvised, and that's a, an important part of that. So part of what you want to do, and these are skills that regardless of whether you're improvising or not, you want people to listen to each other. And so this is a good exercise for developing that aspect of listening around to the ensemble is you get... Uh, two or three different groups of instruments together to improvise together. And one of the things that I'll sometimes do is I'll just give them some sort of vague description. Okay, you guys here on on my left, I want you to improvise using the long notes, only using these two notes. And uh, this group over here on my right, I want you to play lots of short notes and you use these two or three notes. While the group in the middle, I want you guys to go wild and do anything you want. And uh, get people to listen to each other and try to... Uh, interact with each other and listen to the kind of musical effect that these different sounds have. It doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad. You're not trying to put a value judgment on it at this point. You're just trying to just kind of evaluate what's going on and, and listen to the kind of uh, the, the musical effect that it has if you do something this way. And it's it's challenging sometimes just to get the kids to to do anything when you put them on the spot like that. It's uh, I I think that I had a professor say this when I was in college and I thought it was perfect. And it's like you know they can play all these band pieces and it's wonderful, but you take away all the sheet music and say play a song and like you know you've been playing your instrument for twelve years and you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, um, well that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy teaching improvisation to middle school students is they have not yet developed a fear for improvising and uh, or at least many haven't Um, and so when I do the same kinds of workshops with high school or college students one of the things I've noticed is that there are more students who will freeze up and just don't want to take a solo and the older they get Uh, so I guess the the more we get to the point of where we're we're used to reading something off of a page the less uh, comfortable we feel just playing something off the page and so that's why I think starting them young at the middle school level is the way to go. Get them before they've developed that fear. Well, and you can convince middle school students that a three-note solo is really cool, but a kid in college is going to feel like he's taking all these steps backwards. It always depends on the uh, the, the student, what they're doing. Um, a lot of my ideas and the approach that I, that I use for teaching improvisation are based on... Uh, a, a couple of different books written by Hal Crook, who's a fabulous jazz trombonist. 
Um, he wrote a book called How to Improvise an Approach to Practicing Improvisation and another one called Ready, Aim, Improvise. Um, and the, they're not less uh, um, a discussion about music theory and the, the theory behind improvisation and more just this is uh, an approach to how you practice it. Um, and I like the, the, the title Ready, Aim, Improvise because it's very much a good description for uh, the approach that he uses and that I really like about it is that you pick one topic and you want to aim towards that improvement in that one particular topic rather than trying to just go ahead and, and jam. And, you know, if you if you just jam all the time, you'll make improvements. But if you if you focus on, well, today I want to really work on my chord tone soloing or I want to improvise today and practice utilizing silence effectively and force yourself to really work on that particular topic, you're going to actually make improvements much quicker in that particular area than if you just put on a, a play along track and just practice improvising for an hour. Yeah, so I actually have a goal and intent whenever you sit down to work on your improvising. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think if we think about it, that's what we do when we practice uh, anything else. Uh, today I'm going to work on my articulations on this solo. Or, and then I'm going to move on and I'm going to work on my multiple tonguing or I'm going to work on my legato or I'm going to do this or that. So we, we have these goals when we practice uh, other types of music, but we tend to not want to do that when we're practicing improvisation for some reason. Well, here is a bit of a polarizing thing about teaching improvisation. And uh, you're a composer too, and mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time doing that. How uh, important or how valuable do you think it is to have kids actually write solos? Like get out a pen and paper and say, in the perfect world, these would be the notes that I would have come up with all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a great thing. It's a, it's a wonderful exercise. And, and uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I got interested. One of the reasons why I got interested in composition in the first place and, and studying it was because I was enjoying improvising. And I thought, well, if I learn to compose, then that should be able to help my impro improvisation and discovered that I enjoyed composing, too. Um, so I, I think of them, they're almost two sides of the same coin. Uh, improvisation is, is sometimes defined as composing on the spot. Um, and uh, composing, uh, the, the process at least that I compose in, is very much improvisatory, where I'll sit down at the keyboard or pick up my trombone and just play some ideas and improvise some ideas until I find a a little hook that I like and kind of play with that a little bit and develop an idea that way. So I, I really do think that they, they both inform each other. As far as writing out their own solo, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, it's a great way to learn some of the, the technical details about uh, how to improvise. And um, another thing that I think is a great exercise is to improvise a solo and then transcribe your own solo and kind of learn from your mistakes and one of the interesting things about that is sometimes your mistakes are more creative than what you meant to play. Valid. <laughs> I, I, th those are all my best solos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. There's, uh, there's a lot of people that don't, don't like having students write solos. I think it's a fear that a student will write a solo for a performance and then perform that solo over and over again and not actually go on. And so I guess there's that danger. But yeah. I, I've always thought, if I can't write a solo that I like when I have five hours, am I really going to do it when I have zero time? Right. You know? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a stepping stone on, uh, on a, a road to uh, becoming a better improviser. And, uh, 
yeah, if all you ever do is write out your solos and play it note for note, then you're not going to learn about improvisation as much as if you tried to play it differently every time. But, uh, you know, it's it's a tool. And so just as long as it's not overused um, historically too, a lot of a lot of the great soloists from the swing era or earlier would kind of have their own little solo that they would play on a particular tune. And they uh, ended up, they may have kind of improvised it at first, but over time they developed the, their standard solo that they would play. And maybe they would change it up a little bit from, from performance to performance, but it was still essentially the same solo. So I think there's a little historical validity to that as well. I, I think you're right, because you can find those same recordings and maybe just the solo fits so well with the piece that it became a part of it. Yeah. Well, and then there are also some examples that I can think of off the top of my head where now it's the tradition that whoever plays that solo plays the uh, Thad Jones solo from April in Paris by the Count Basie Orchestra because it's such a great solo. Well, and you almost have to with a lot of the, uh, especially the the old tunes, you know, uh, like imagine in the mood without the dueling saxophone. Solo. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's uh, something that's almost expected right now. I don't see a problem with doing it. So it's it's like many things, it's a tool. And if you can overuse it, um, one of my favorite expressions is if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, every problem begins to look like a nail. So you know, just make sure that you have other tools in your toolbox and you take a, uh, a whole bunch of different approaches as needed. Whenever you were studying jazz improvisation, that that kind of got you thinking about uh, composition and moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how, how long have you been composing and what, what kind of stuff do you tend to write? My very first composition, I'm going to guess, was maybe when I was around 12 or 13 years old. Uh, my mother is a musician. She's a piano teacher. And when I was a, a kid growing up, my mother directed the junior choir at the church that we attended. And so uh, my sister and I were, of course, expected to sing in the choir. Um, that was not something I was, you know, I didn't want to sing. That was not cool to do. So I kind of resisted. And since I was learning to play trumpet at the time, I kept asking my mother to find some piece that I could play trumpet with the choir on. And of course, she doesn't have anything in the in the library that has trumpet on it. And so she got tired of me saying that and just said, well, if you want to play something with trumpet, why don't you go write something? So I went ahead and did it. Uh, so that was my very first composition, a short piece for junior choir, piano and two trumpets. By the time I was in high school, uh, somebody who I had no idea who he really how how big a name he was at the time. But my high school j- uh, jazz ensemble director, Dr. Ron Holloman was close friends with a pianist and composer arranger named Frank Mantooth. And many people, many of our listeners might be familiar with a lot of Frank Mantooth's big band writing. He's also a, a Grammy, Grammy award-winning, I think, composer and put out uh, some very excellent big band albums. But he came and uh, kind of introduced me to the idea of voicing things out in, uh, first on piano uh, but then I took what he was he was teaching us about piano voicings and applied it to doing some big band writing. And so I got interested in big band writing as a high school student. Um, by the time I was in college studying composition, I was uh, expected to write a variety of things. So I wrote uh, things for brass chamber ensembles and uh, solo drum set, uh, string quartets, uh, even a little bit of electronic music as a composition student. But I would say my my biggest love of composing and arranging has to be for the big band. I've done uh, quite a bit of big band writing. Who, who's your favorite big band arranger, composer? 
Oh, that's that's tough to say. Um, I'm a real big fan of Thad Jones and his writing. Um, I'm also a big fan of uh, a lot of Bob Brookmeyer stuff. Sammy Nestico, just because his charts swing so hard. And, and uh, generally speaking, they're not all that challenging to play. Uh, comparatively, they just sound like a million bucks. Uh, you know, I was reading, uh, he, he has that big book he wrote. Oh, yeah. I, I, I picked it up when I was in college. I paid the $100 for the autograph and everything. <laughs> and uh, and that was one of the, the main things, is he said, uh, you know, just because people can do it doesn't mean that you should write it. And if everybody plays your parts well, then your song's going to sound good. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that was one of the hardest things that as a composition student that I had to learn. And that's something that I've discovered since teaching other composers uh, is pretty common, is that we have an idea that we try to put too many good ideas into one composition. And it's almost always better if you just take a couple of really good ideas and develop them well. And you can create a much more interesting and playable composition that way. And so that's that's one thing that I try to do with my writing. And, and that's one thing that Nestico does so well. And you said that you got started because you had this situation where you needed a piece of music and it didn't exist. And uh, I, I swear that that's what everybody who composes says, is that at some point they needed some music and it wasn't there. And what I never hear is, well, I had a teacher that had us all write music. Yeah, I, that, that one I don't ever hear. That, you know, that's true. And that, again, that goes kind of back to the national standards that uh, the National Association for Music Education has put together, as well as uh, uh, my understanding of the North Carolina essential state standards for teaching music, is that there's much more of an emphasis now on making sure that uh, music students are learning to compose as well. And so hopefully that might be something that's going to kind of change. I guess there's also this, this idea that composers are... Uh, to a certain degree, we think of them as dead white guys and that we don't really necessarily think of them as, as living people or something that we can do. But, but when we go to see a performance of music, we kind of get excited about the performance and we actually see the musicians performing. And so that's what we kind of think, oh, maybe I'd, I'd enjoy doing that. We don't see the composer sitting down at his uh, piano or at his computer composing something and, uh, I guess that wouldn't be all that interesting to watch anyway. So I guess that may be one of the reasons why we tend to avoid it. I assume that a lot of it has to do with both time and comfort level, is that we have this tradition of producing ensembles, of producing bands and orchestras. And really, when it comes down to it, that is the thing that is most emphasized from school districts and things. Because if you create a bunch of great musicians, but you can't perform as an ensemble, uh, you don't you don't keep that job. yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that's one of the reasons that it seems like so many band and orchestra programs that don't produce lifelong musicians that, you know, maybe 5% of the kids will actually pick up their instrument again after high school or after college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, and I think you make a good point as, as music educators, too. We're not usually judged on how well our students compose necessarily. We're, we're judged on how well they do at contest. And that has to do with a performance. Um, fortunately, I, I, I think I've, I'm starting to see kind of a trend with this changing around, and I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, ubiquitous uh, uh, software and, and different kinds of devices that easily able to compose and record music. Uh, nowadays, you can you can get a, an iPad or uh, 
uh, a computer and with programs like GarageBand or Fruity Loops, you can have students experience what it's like to put together a composition and have it sound pretty professional in a very short amount of time and have that as sort of a portfolio for them to to take home and show their parents or play for administrators and such. So I would like to think that uh, technology is going to help kind of change that. Technology is hopefully going to change a lot of those things, but I, I guess we really we have to value it ourselves. I, mm-hmm. I, I worry that uh, the reason that kids don't keep on playing their instruments after they leave is that we teach them how to play in a 40-piece group, and they just never have 40 buddies over at their house with the euphoniums. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's an issue too. And one thing I've I've kind of noticed as a as a college teacher is that a lot of students who leave high school don't realize that they don't have to be a music major in order to continue to participate and play in a, in a musical ensemble. And so I think a lot of people put away their horns, um, as particularly at some of the smaller schools where I've taught. A large number of the students that we relied on to come in and fill in important parts in the concert band and in the jazz ensemble were not music majors. They're just folks that played in high school and had a good time, and a lot of them were very good musicians, and they just wanted to come in and uh, enjoy playing still. Uh, but a lot of them, you have to go out and make the effort to, to let them know that they have that opportunity. Um, and then when they get out of college and they get out into the real world, then a lot of them put away their instruments too. But I'm, I'm fortunate in that I live in an area where there are a number of musical ensembles for community members to perform in. And I've been able to, to uh, actively participate in a number of them, either as a player or a couple of groups I'm directing right now. So there are always opportunities for folks if they're willing to look at it. And we have some folks that uh, uh, drive from uh, maybe an hour away to come in and play music with us once a week and then play a performance. I took part in a, a number of community bands growing up, and you would. You'd have people that would drive for an hour, an hour and a half to be a part of an organization like that. I read through your blog some. Any, anything else you've been picking up on lately and thinking about? One thing that, I, that I'd like to say is that I'm not really a scientist, but I am a science fan. And so I try to think a lot about how things of a scientific nature can inform us as musicians. Um, it's really easy to kind of think that uh, I'm an artist with a capital A and that art and science don't coincide. But um, I think that uh, science provides a, uh, a really accurate lens as a way to kind of view into how we're performing music and how we're teaching music. And uh, uh, it's really easy to kind of let our cognitive biases shape what we're hearing and what we think we're hearing. And uh, so I, I like to kind of approach things frequently from a more scientific objective uh, rather than subjective viewpoint. So a lot of my blog posts are kind of along those lines, thinking about things logically, uh, trying to put together a blindfold test, for example, and have a bunch of people that uh, tell me what you think of these players, embouchures, just by sound alone. Uh, And so some of those are, are, are some of the more interesting topics that I've blogged about, I think. Yeah, well, I think there was a. Do you, do you watch or watch? Do you listen to the Science Friday podcast? Oh yeah, I love Science Friday. <laughs> it's a great podcast. You you can also turn off this podcast to go listen to that one. I'll, <laughs> I'll prove. Uh, but uh, they were talking about something not too long ago where someone was. Uh, they were you know major concerto contest, mm-hmm. and they were comparing uh, the winners of these contests 
uh, and the losers and having people, you know, judge by watching and listening and by just listening. And the people who just listen never pick the same people as the ones who watched and listened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, and there have been similar things that I've read about in the past where they've uh, sometimes taken the the same exact solo and synchronized it with a violinist on video dressed in three different ways. One, one, she might be wearing a concert gown and the other, she might be wearing jeans and a t-shirt. And then they have people listen and evaluate the different performances. And invariably the people pick the, the one in the concert gown. Well, that's, that's the best performance when in reality, what they're listening to is the exact same performance. So it's, it's kind of funny how subjective we can let our impressions get. So it's neat to kind of – those are kind of things that I like to, to study and listen to and blog about and, and try to discuss. That's, that's interesting how interrelated all of our senses must be. It explains yeah. <laughs> why my music never sounds as good when I'm listening to it on a stinky bus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, I really appreciate having you on. I feel like we could probably record two or three other podcasts right now. <laughs> some some great stuff. Thank you for letting me ramble on and, and go off about uh, some of my favorite topics. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on and be a part of the Free Music Ed podcast. Hey, well, I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And most importantly, as you go on about this week, keep practicing. Thank you.